I am a person who lives with ADHD and OCD, which is like a super fun brain to be in all the time. Part of that means that I get overwhelmed by all my multiplicities. It's just for me, this idea of me being enough just by being me has been very overwhelming and I think helped me understand like real belonging. If you don't know who you are, the world will end up telling you who you are. I see this phenomenon on repeat, where you're clear on who you should be versus embracing who you truly are. And gosh, many of us don't even know who we truly are. And if we lead from a place of who you think you should be instead of who you truly are, it will take a toll on you and those around you. There is immense effort put into editing instead of owning your multiplicities, only leaving you exhausted and confused. Your tendency to exile and edit who you are in your wholeness is rooted in the primal need to be connected and safe. And for those of you with identities that the world sees as less than or regularly dehumanized, this is understandably connected to your survival. Now, it makes sense your reflexive response to exile the parts of yourself you do not feel are acceptable or right works on overtime. But this way is unsustainable and leads to burnout and a crisis of identity. To move from exiling to befriending all aspects of who you are requires you to commit to a lot of deep and important work. And when you begin a serious inquiry to unpack the burdens you carry that impact how you show up in the world, you can embrace all of your multiplicities instead of trying to fit into a mold of what you think the world wants you to be. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. It can take a lot of effort sorting through the noise and the baggage you carry to figure out who you are and to embrace all of your identities. Now, you're not a monolith, but instead full of complexity and multiplicity. Yet we're told over and over again who we should be. I'm learning more and more how I see myself and how I see the world has been impacted by dominant culture and not the global majority. Now, I think these terms, dominant culture and global majority, are important to name, especially in a time where we're seeing people drill down on identity and culture in ways that are based in fear and division. Now, this is a big, big topic and one that deserves its own show, but it's worth referencing as we acknowledge the challenges we all face in really owning our identities with confidence and clarity. Now, dominant culture is the group who holds the most power and is often not a majority of the population. For those of us here in the U.S. or in Europe, this group often holds white, male, Christian, middle class, straight educated, tall, thin, neurotypical, able-bodied identities, just to name a few. And when we look at who makes up Congress, who leads businesses, churches, and educational institutions, this is only reinforced, though we're slowly seeing some much-needed changes amidst a lot of pushback. I know I breathe in these messages that to belong and to be safe meant molding to these identities. And I can see now how I viewed my body, success, along with my sense of belonging and enough, took the brunt of these messages. Now, these identities do not define someone as good or bad or even enough, 
though we're seeing the dangers of how dominant culture influences our sense of identity, along with our worthiness, safety, and opportunities. You know, and one thing I'm learning in my somatic abolitionist training with Resma Menachem, who's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, along with his amazing team, is that those of us in white bodies are hyper-focused on doing what dominant culture says is right and avoiding wrong at extreme costs. And I'm seeing now how when you get caught up in the dangerous binaries of right and wrong and good versus bad, you're on a path to quickly lose your sense of enough. You also give up your power and give up what is most sacred in you when you do not make room for embracing the beautiful multiplicities in you and in all of us when you live by these insidious right, wrong, good, bad, binary ways of filtering yourself. Now, my guest today hit a wall in her own life and found the power of embracing all of her multiplicities instead of trying to fit into a mold that never really fit her. Reverend Sarah Heath is an ordained United Methodist clergywoman. She's originally from Canada, and she attended Duke Divinity School, where she earned her Master's of Divinity degree. Sarah currently serves as a church consultant and is a one-on-one life coach helping people through transitions in faith and in life. And she's also a serial podcast host and creator. You know, she's a part of Making Spaces and Sonderlust and is a co-host of your favorite aunts and just launched Revcovery. She has authored two books, What's Your Story and The Authenticity Challenge. Sarah's work challenges people to tell their story, invite everyone to the table, and find restoration instead of demolition, and connect the spiritual with the ordinary. Now pay attention to the many identities Sarah has come to understand and embody as burnout was taking hold of her life. Notice Sarah's nuanced rumble with her relation to risk. And listen for how renovating an Airstream is helping her get clarity on meaningful work and learning how to receive. Now, please welcome Reverend Sarah Heath to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. Well, we're going to cover a lot of territory today, but I really wanted to kick off our conversation Talking about like, you're like living a metaphor right now. Like yeah, you're I am in the a walking middle. metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> metaphor. I think a lot of us could feel like that these yeah. days. So for you, your metaphors, you're in the middle of a literal deconstruction mm-hmm. and reconstruction with your life, but also with an airstream that you're rebuilding right with now. With my hands. With my hands. Yep. With your hands and some power tools. So you left pastoring a hundred year old congregation that mm-hmm. you helped rebuild. Yep. And to, to, to go move to Bend, Oregon to rebuild an airstream. So catch us up. What led up to this seemingly <laughs> big shift for you? I don't think it's seemingly. I think it is arguably is a big shift. I don't actually live in Bend, Oregon. It's even weirder than that. I commute between Bend, Oregon, and I'm still... So the congregation that I served is in a cool city in California called Costa Mesa, and I love the area. And so um, I haven't completely left the area. I just spend chunks of time in Bend, Oregon. And I have to say before we get going that part of the story is a little bit of, um, well, I had been in ministry, full-time ministry for 16 years. Part of my story is that I never wanted to be a lead pastor. That was never a goal of mine. Uh, when I came out of seminary, I just knew that I loved working with youth and young adults. And so I started working with youth and young adults. Next thing I know, I'm running my own worship service. 
Next thing I know, the bishops are calling and saying, hey, could you consider being a pastor at a site? So a campus pastor? I said, absolutely. As long as I don't have to be a solo lead pastor, I'll do it. And in the midst of this, I was spending a lot of my time in Costa Mesa. And so about five or six years ago, seven years ago, I guess, um, I was asked to be I had already been serving on a team known as the District Planning and Strategy Committee, and we've been talking about this adorable church. And adorable makes it sound like it was small. It's a big building. And so it's this really cool old building, but they only had 17 to 27 in worship. And so I was sent in as a District Planning and Strategy person to come in, and they actually voted to close. Um, And it was like such a bummer, but also like, okay, well, what could we happen next? I just met with a bunch of community leaders, and I'm like, hey, I need to come up with a creative idea for what to do with this old building. Like we can do anything in ministry. And like here I'm hoping they'll be like, we do like a pub. We do, you know, this is like what I'm hoping for. And I'm like, come on guys, what do you think? Give me your best. And they're like, yeah, we think you should do a church. <laughs> I was like, what? And I'm like, well, Sarah, your ability to make space for people, um, those who are both uh, conservative and those who are um, progressive. And one girl said, the only way I know how to say it to you, Sarah, is that my dad is a, is a gay man and my mother is a conservative Christian and I want a place I can worship with both of them. And she ended up becoming part of this community when they eventually, so I turned in my, um, my proposal, which was, I would like to make a church inside of this church. And so <laughs> they ended up uh, asking me to do so. And it was great. Uh, and if you're and anyone or a person of faith or a leader at all, what you should be um, paying attention to is the red flags in this, which meant I was a parachuted in person asked to redevelop a community that didn't ask to be redeveloped. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a really that right. is a flag. And I should say my first Sunday, like literally our power had been stolen. Someone stole our account for a wire. So like new pastors often say like, I didn't have any power when I started. I literally didn't have any power when I started. We had no power. Uh, they had been worshiping in the lobby because someone threw a brick through a window. I mean, it was the craziest story. And here I am like, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna save this thing was my hope. So people who are really asking the big questions and needing space to ask the big questions. There's a lot of obligation. There is a lot of um, expectation. There's a lot of need for right belief. There's a lot of people acting, particularly in church spaces, out of fear. And so we ended up growing quicker than we should have, which was great, except we didn't have a lot of leaders. So again, leaders that are listening to this podcast, you're hearing all the red flags. So we're looking great, and I'm being crushed. Uh, and I, again, you're dealing to something that I think you would particularly understand, Rebecca, is like I'm dealing with people who are traumatized and they don't even know what's traumatized them. So we're talking every Sunday, I was preaching to at least six people who have masters of divinities, which is my um, gold standard for folks who work in my career. And so I'm like trying to like lead a group of people who are at best uh, waiting for me to say the thing that will finally let them leave. Right. Like just waiting for one more heartbreak for a church. We're also no pressure. No pressure. We're also dealing with a lot of LGBTQIA folks who have been literally rejected from the communities they were coming from. And so, again, you're holding space for people who are in extreme trauma. All of this is going on. I'm also in the midst of, all right, like I've been serving in ministry for 16 years. I'm not married. I don't have a family. I kind of had this sense of like my whole life was this work, which when it's good work becomes like, uh, you know, it's 
I, it's kind of like a, a noble distraction, right? Like, oh yes, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out what my life is going to be about later once I'm done doing this thing. And um, again, those of you who are listening with a keen ear might hear, uh, if you're anyone who's ever done anything with an Enneagram, I am a giant Enneagram three with a giant Enneagram two wing. Didn't know that was my story. Um, and it was an incorrect placement, I think. I, I, and it wasn't just me. I can't take all the credit for making it an unhealthy space for me um, work-wise. I think uh, the folks above me were really excited about our success as well. And so just continuing to like, well, we'll just, if it's not broke, uh, let's not fix that. So I just kept working so hard. We're talking, there was financial issues. There was buildings that needed to be redone. And in the midst of all of that, Late at night, when everyone else is looking at, I don't know, dirty pictures or whatever, I'm looking at Airstream renovations on Pinterest, <laughs> just like scrolling through, you know, um, and to the point where like for one of my birthdays, my friends took me to a winery that had a bunch of uh, Airstreams on it for vacation. When I would write, when I wrote my second book, I wrote it from within an Airstream that I was like staying in. And I have no idea why the tin can. I've since done some processing about why I love them so much, but yeah, I think it's this idea of like a home that is mobile. So in the midst of all of this, I'm burnt out and then a pandemic hits. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. Uh, and that just, so I'm, I'm already telling my bosses, like I've got like a year left in me and they're saying, well, where are you going? And I'm saying, I don't know, but I can't stay here. Um, and in the midst of it as well, a dear friend passed away who was a uh, a writer and just someone who meant a lot, not just to me, but to other people. And um, we had just started becoming pretty good friends because we both kind of speak around the same stuff around deconstruction and what does it mean to look at faith differently? And, you know, she's the first person to push me to ask for more money to speak at an event. Anyway, all that to say her husband and I both have a passion for reconstruction and rebuilding and restoration. And so uh, he contacted me and we started talking about you know, he does a space for co-working and all this sort of stuff. And uh, he ended up saying, hey, I found this Airstream for a great price in Tennessee. And he says, hey, I just want you to know I bought this Airstream with you have to buy, like you have two weeks to decide whether you want to buy it or not. And he's like, no problem. I've got other buyers lined up. But Sarah, this is your dream. You're risk averse. You've made everyone else's dreams come true. When are you going to make your dreams come true? Like he called my bluff. And I was like, I am afraid of everything, right? Mm -hmm. Because theoretically, redoing an Airstream, sure. Have I watched all the videos? Absolutely. Did I belong to an RV repair club, which I did not own an RV, nor no, not even like a vehicle that could tow an RV. And I was weekly watching re RV repair things. Why? Like, it was like the weirdest thing, but I don't have anywhere to put it. Like, I live in California. We don't exactly have like, plots of land. <laughs> There's nowhere to put this thing. So I have this Airstream now. Where am I going to put it? And I have two weeks to decide whether I'm going to do it or not. And she says, hey, what if you brought it here? And then a dear friend of mine uh, sent a picture of her yard and her and her kids had already cleared it out, like the side yard, and said, it, we measured it. It is exactly the size of your Airstream. Would you come and work on it here? And so she said, she actually said these words without knowing what they meant to me. She said, you always make space for other people. Why don't you let us make space for you? And Oof. I, like at that point, it's like, I get it, God. Like, okay, divine one, whatever. You and I might not be in the greatest place, but I get it. Like I had to do this thing. So then I tell some of my other friends and I noticed their reaction to me saying I got an Airstream 
was um, both not surprised and then there was something behind it because I found out for about a year my friends had been raising money to help me buy an Airstream without me knowing behind my back. And so for my 40th birthday, I was handed a check and it was just like a bunch of people you know, coming against me. And so all of that happens. And obviously I wasn't planning on living in the Airstream, but I realized that the way my heart was, I had loved this church so much. I love the community. I knew that if I kept serving it, I would get, I was starting to get, um, starting to get bitter. And that just wasn't me. And I've always loved people. But when my phone would ring uh, or I get a text message, my body would react because I was overwhelmed with needs, other people's needs. And so um, I knew I needed to put my hands to work. So I eventually actually did resign and said, hey, look, you've got this amount of time to find someone else. And right after that, I set myself up for two months just straight working on this Airstream. So that's been, it's been a year that I've owned the Airstream, uh, but I left my full-time position in July. And that was a really long answer to your question. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I knew that there was a lot that led up to this big shift. So I'm really glad that you took the time and shared that. And there's a couple of things you said that I want to just point out before I go to a follow-up question is you, you quickly at the beginning of that pointed out that, yes, you're the one that's doing this rebuilding and renovating of the Airstream, but it's not, you're not doing it alone. And I, I, I appreciate that. And I feel like, especially in this world of social media and, you know, image oriented, we, there's so much on a representation of what supports we have behind us. So I think that's so important to know that. And I'm glad that you acknowledge that. And you also talked about how it sounds like your, your support circle really knows about your fears of, like you said, you're really risk averse. Oh, totally. Which, but I don't know, <laughs> and I don't know you as well as your friends. But I'm. I was going to say, I think we are friends. I think you do know. <laughs> well, I, but I don't know as you well. Maybe I have known you as long as some of these other folks in your life, and and so. But here, this makes me curious because there's the things that maybe would cause many of us fear. You would mm, dive in, right? Right. A right. toilet needs to be removed. A door I need to design and hand design a do- door to church, this old this <laughs> historic church, and get all the permits for it. No big deal. So, the, so can you can you go a little yeah. deeper though on what specifically are you risk averse around? Because I don't think it's a generalized thing for you. No. So, so what were your friends naming that you are risk averse of? I think they were naming that I'm risk averse when it comes to my own desires. Um, uh, and I feel that, right. Yeah. And so I think particularly for those of us who were socialized as, uh, females, we have Mm -hmm. been, uh, the good girls, right. We've been the good girls. Like, so I, an example of that is speak for yourself. Maybe I don't know if I've been so good, but (laughs) I felt the pull for it. (laughs) I tried really hard. Uh, so I, you know, like I said, I, I made a weird discovery. So if you're if you're not an Enneagram cult member, don't even worry about it. But like a three is like a is sort of a someone who wants to achieve, right? They're all about achievement. And twos are DNA. all about right. We're all about <laughs> service, right? Service, service, service too. So I um the reason I say that I was sort of un- unaware of my own desires or unwilling to admit my own desires to myself or others, which might sound really weird. But when you get detached from those things, when you get detached from your own desires, and if you're within a religious um, sector, particularly within Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we are um, sort of taught to almost look at our own desires as problematic, right? 
Even Buddhism, actually, like don't have them. So there is this sort Mm -hmm. of like separating yourself from your desires, which – and sometimes you even get rewarded for your ability to do that. Like how far away from your – like knowing even what you want, right? Like – well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in like, think about professional development, mm-hmm. like how do you shut down right. and bifurcate your humanity, your right. emotions, your mental well-being? I can take anything. I right. am so like, that's a, that's a badge of honor. Right. Yeah. And I, I jump in. I love that. Like, so I, right as actually this pandemic was starting, I was on the phone with um, my friend, Jen Hatmaker, who's a, she's a writer. She's so funny. If you haven't had her on, you should. She's a, just a joy. And so she said, Sarah, I think you've thought you were too, because you have to remember that you mm. moved to the South where women are taught that our, our value and ability is to care for the other. But then you have an entire part of your brain that goes and succeed. So what I did really well was married those two things together. Um, and I was like, oh, I can care for other people and be really good at it. Right. So like it, am I caring for other people? And again, this is like making it way too simplistic, but I think my risk aversion is I'm afraid of what other people will think of me. Will they think that I'm still a caregiver? Will they see the value of what I'm doing? Because as I'm just learning to hold hands with my three and be okay with the fact that like, yeah, I actually have wanted to achieve. I mean, I think about the little girl who started acting at so young and I was in sixth grade and I really wanted the role of Maid Marian and I learned how to pretend I didn't want that role because, oh, they chose me. Of course they chose me. I worked my butt, like I was going to get it. But I learned very early mm-hmm. that to express my needs or express my desires made me um, – And my fear was it separated me from community. And all I wanted to do, the question all of us ask all the time is, do I belong in this space? Right? So if I had these desires, it like separated me. So for you, there were parts of you that felt like if I own and express, communicate my desires, I'm at risk of losing my community. Correct. Yeah. 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 And I think many female leaders have experienced Mm -hmm. this moment. Some of us choose to bury it. Some of us choose, you know, um, and there's this, um, the only word I know for it, and I don't know if it's quite correct yet, is coy. We learn how to be coy about our achievements. We learn how to, oh, I don't know. I'm just trying to, whatever. I don't like coy. I'm having a physical reaction to that word right now. I don't do coy. And when I see coy, I'm like, my trust level goes down. (laughs) Like, And then like my... Therapist parts are like, what's going on with right. you? It's a manipulation Anyways. that we're doing Ooh. without meaning to. And it's, well, it's a protective. It's a protective. Right. It, feeling, it feels manipulative, but it has a protective. Right. And that's sure. why I want to be careful when I say like, the truth is you're right. I did spend, I have spent most of the time working on my Airstream alone. But I think the surprising thing to me is the number of people who have sort of come along with me in the journey. And for me, someone who no longer wants to be separated from community, because I think the experience I had of being the lead pastor was great and also incredibly othering. And I think I don't ever want to be othered again. I don't ever want to have my achievement or my position make me feel separated from the very people that I'm trying to be of service to. Um, and so I think the surprising thing for me is I thought I was going to go into the wilderness, you know, of an, of a tin can 
alone, work with my hands, and people have been showing up. I mean, I'm talking about the number of people that I literally only know from Instagram who have shown up to put my plumbing in, to um, fix a hot water heater, to like a friend of a friend who like has become so close to me is someone who like redid my floor. All this stuff is like, I couldn't have predicted this, but I had to let go of what I thought was going to happen. And that was also my lesson in redoing the church as well and flipping that community. And I think there is some, for those of us who are threes and we want to like know the outcome, like what's the point of this if I don't know the outcome? This has been a giant journey of me of deconstructing my um, enoughness. Like I would have all these goals for what we were going to get done in a day. And when I tell you, it was my eighth trip to Home Depot that I'm like, well, I guess today is not going to end in this being done. I mean, if you had asked me when we started this project, where would you be, you know, January 2022? And I'd be like, well, probably I'll be like putting the walls in. No friends. Like we just have a subfloor and <laughs> she still has a giant, like she's like probably a year out and, um, and that's great. And like what she's becoming is really and she is Gidget. Oh yeah, sorry. Your... I've I have um given a pronoun to my <laughs> to my Airstream. <laughs> she is officially named actually. She's registered with the official Airstream vintage collector. Her name is Gidget, Gidget the Airstream. So Gidget the Airstream. So I want to jump in. You you touched on this follow-up question a little bit as you address connecting and reconnecting with your desires. Mm -hmm. But what else are you deconstructing and what else are you rebuilding inside of you? Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of it, uh, and, and this is the part I'm learning how to be, get really honest with. Um, I had, I would say an unhealthy relationship with my spirituality. When you have been a professional Christian um, <laughs> which is what I was. I was a professional crit and still am. I still speak at events and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I became a performative Christian and I don't mean that in like, I've always, you know, I've never been the like super evangelical except for when I was in college and was trying really hard because the boys were cuter. Um, I've never been like a, like over the top, whatever, but I, I think I, I had lost my connection to the divine within myself and I had some images of God that were quite painful and harmful. Um, it felt like every one of the things I'd prayed for, the opposite had happened. All the hopes that I had for my personal life had um, fallen apart. And I saw myself as a bit of a martyr, if I'm honest, like, oh, I get it. God, as long as I'm serving you, it doesn't matter that I wanted whatever it might be. So I think there was a healthy separation in some ways from my desires because it felt too painful to admit, like, I'm really disappointed that I don't own a home or like the things that I thought everyone else around me was having. And and when you have this divine belief that like God loves other people um, so much and you can see it, you look at their lives and you think, ah, oh, man, I wish you could see just how beloved you are, but you can't sit with your own belovedness because it's almost as too painful. But then why does my life look like whatever? Meanwhile, everyone else is going through the same thing. So I think I'm part of my deconstruction. And if we want to call it renovation or, you know, one of the words I like to use is reformation, like a, a reuse of things that were already a, a transcending and including for me is getting a little bit clearer about what is my relationship to the divine that is not boss and person who's working really hard to matter. So this so this segues to what I next want to talk to you about, if yeah, that's okay. Totally. So 
you hold you hold many identities. Yeah. You know, some you claim and the other others the world has put on you. And so the ones I know that you claim, you know, you, you mentioned actress and pastor and speaker. You're also a designer, you're a writer, you're a self-professed science nerd. And I'm curious <laughs> what identities have left you feeling boxed in and restrictive. I think the one that I'm enjoying redefining is what is a pastor. Because I think the pastor one was that I needed, like that I was trying to take you somewhere, but it wasn't somewhere that I agenda. Yeah. And that has never been something I'm totally comfortable with Um, because my, I myself have landed so many different places and I, I am comfortable with people along their journey. And so I think it's not that I've rejected or, but I felt really boxed in by this idea of pastor um, to the point where like I'd go to a party and people would play the game, guess what Sarah does? And I love that no one would ever guess pastor, which is not a healthy relationship to have with your job. And so I think that's the one that I'm sort of redefining because I I have begun to recognize that people have seen me as their pastor. And even, you know, um, it's taken me a while to understand the influence that my voice has. And I don't say that, again, to be manipulative or coy, um, it has taken me stepping away for people to come and say, hey, I just want you to know like what you've done or what you have done in the past has really mattered to me. And um, I think that's – I'm getting more comfortable with seeing myself as a pastor who doesn't need to save your soul and isn't failing by not saving your soul, quote unquote, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't really need you to land on anything, uh, but I would love you to know that you are beloved. You know, I, I that's where I would love for you to land. So I think that's the one that's really taken a a, a shift. Um, I think actress has been on the back, you know, patio for a while, and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm. I miss uh, acting. I don't know what that looks like in the future, um, because I think I I don't want to just be performative in my work. I think writer is an interesting one too. I'm um, I have a lot of insecurities around, you know self-promotion. And so like I have two books out and um, I had a publisher who was not super great at promoting. And so I just kind of let it go. And now the publisher is no longer publishing my books. And so now I get to choose what happens to them. And so again, it's this like whole redefinition. And the word I've been using a lot in this season is um, invitation. Like, What's the mm-hmm. invitation in that? Like I find it really funny all the timing, right? Like, oh, that's interesting that like the moment I step away from being this like United Methodist pastor, this is what that looks like and writer and writing for the United Methodist publishing house, which had a certain scope, like certain people know to buy my book. In fact, I have a appointment, appointment. I have a call later for a church that's using it as a study. And that's great. I actually really like the writing that I did and I want to kind of share it more. And I have to figure out what does it look like to you maybe be a self-publisher now. Like there's all this stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, those are the things that are being redefined for sure. Where do you find true belonging today as someone who, at least to me, it seems is most free when you're embodying your multiplicity? <sighs> I think I, I'm, I think it takes time. So July, right? So it hasn't even been a year. It's been half of a year, which is only really funny because three months in, I told my friend, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And it's six months since I left my job. And she was like, 
I want to tell you that it's three months and who the hell thought you would solve all of this in three months other than you? Like you haven't rested. Um, so I think I'm finding belonging in the surprising way that other people have shown up for my dreams. In receiving, you're finding belonging mm-hmm. in receiving? In receiving and and with people who didn't know Pastor Sarah uh, and them loving me beyond what I can do for them um, or how I can comfort them or um, feeling like I'm a bit needy and having people say, no, like this is the correct level of neediness. Um, and and those moments, I think, you know, the where I'm trying to figure out like, oh, how can I be a little more like I need to find one thing and then having friends reflect to me exactly what you just reflected. So I don't think you're a one thing person. I think you're always going to have these varied interests and they all, you know, filter into making space for people. And it's going to be different and unique because I have a lot of friends who are like, a nurse, uh, you know, whatever. They like have like one title. And I, I think sometimes when you're someone who wears a bunch of hats, you feel like you should have one title. But the times I've tried to fit myself, like when I tried to just be a pastor, I I felt like I was dying on the vine. And so, um, yeah, I think the places of belonging I'm finding most connected to are places where people are just sort of um, showing up for me and I, I'm not, you know, performing for them. I'm not bringing them anything. Um, I'm, I'm receiving, I'm letting them help me with stuff. And then, you know, I find myself trying to do things for them and they're like, nah, I just wanted to hang out with you. And that's enough. Well, I think that's something really powerful. I think a lot of people, there's a, at least a lot of the entrepreneurs and leaders that I know and work with embody a lot of multiplicity of their interests and their gifts and their talents but they conform to the world that wants them to have one thing because it makes other people feel better. Mm -hmm. And I also, I get a sense that you're really understanding what it feels like to be in relationships that value true reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with that, that you're giving back to those people showing up here at, you know, helping with Gidget, just they're getting by just being in your presence and enjoying and that is enough. There is still reciprocity there. Yeah. And yeah. that feels weird. That still feels weird in our very transactional culture. It feels yeah. it feels so weird. And um, you know, one of the things that I continue to um kind of fight is that like you need to have, you know, there I downloaded a book that I haven't listened to yet called like The One Thing, How You Should Have One Thing. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, because that feels very sexy to me. So I'm trying to figure out like, oh, is there like one thing or is there one way that I can sort of like filter all this stuff that I'm doing? But I, Ah. I think there is this way of being open in the world. And um, Glennon Doyle does a great job of talking about this idea of like just doing the next right thing. And um, I am a person who lives with ADHD and OCD, which is like a super fun brain to be in all the time. Um, And so part of that means that I get overwhelmed buy all my multiplicities if I don't stop and focus on one of them at a time. It doesn't mean they're not all there. Um, it just means mm. like, okay, the next right thing literally- Such a good point. Yeah. It's literally the way I have to live. It's like, I have to respond to this next invitation. I have to do this next thing because I can get all of them um, in my head. And so it's just for me, this idea of me being enough just by being me is has been very 
overwhelming. And I think helped me understand like real belonging. So why do I keep going up to Bend? I think in some ways, because when I was in Bend for the first year, very few of my friends up there know Pastor Sarah at all. Most of my friends here in California have at least brushed up against her. And not that I was trying to be two different people, but there's a different expectation. And I know you experience this as a therapist. You walk into a room and there is like a a thing that people expect, and they may not even know they expect it from you. The joke, you know, people make the joke. I'm sure they do it with you. Like, don't do, don't therapize me, or don't like, don't listen to what I'm saying. I know this must be whatever. Like, people come around me and they like stop cussing, which makes me laugh because I'm Canadian. So I'm like a sailor, you know. Like, I feel like there's this like adjustment, or people start explaining to me their spiritual lives, and I'm like, hey, like I just want to be here. And again, I, I appreciate and love that for so long people have given me that trust. But at some point, you're right, I was always, the relationship could only go so far, even in friendships, because I was afraid of letting so many people down. And um, instead of like being honest with myself and them and, hey, I don't know what I want. And the other thing I think that we don't know what to do with yet, and we're going to have to figure out, especially with this great resignation, I don't think people have shifted into that we are capable of being different things in different seasons. Um, and it's gotten like, because even my parents were one job their entire careers, right? And that's getting less and less and less and less. And people I think are sticking it out. I'm seeing it in the pastoral world. Uh, a lot of people are very bitter within their profession. And I don't think our jobs should be the thing that like completely like, I don't, I don't believe necessarily that for everybody, your job is like the thing, right? Uh, I think we've shifted and made it not so great that our job, but it. I think more so after we're all coming, and, you know, we're, we're going into year three of this pandemic or whatever it might be, we're starting to see that like maybe our relationship to our work has been really, really unhealthy. And oh, I think yeah. that's loud and clear, and it scares it scares people right. a lot. Yeah, grind culture. People are still clinging to to grind culture, which is such a powerful connection to supremacy culture. Yes. Um, yes. Because it's just known. It's known. And there's still a desire to go back to that. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit. Okay. Tell about what you do. Um, one of the things I love that you do so well is you help people see the beauty in their lot, their own lives and the spaces they're in. And, and as I was writing that question, beauty is such an interesting word, right? Especially for those who identify as women in modern culture. And so I'd love for you to share what your relationship is to beauty and your body and what do you see in the mirror and the spaces that you're in? Gosh, yeah. So I think um, part, again, another part of my story. So discovering that I had an OCD happened in college and it was around eating disorders, disordered eating. Um, I, I have really accepted a lot of the narrative that my body is bad. And so um, and if you grew up in a space that was religious, um, perhaps you've heard this sort of the flesh is weak, the flesh is bad, women should cover them, you know, and I, I think I bought into that in a way that I already thought my body was something that needed to be policed. Um, what I put in it, how I worked out, I was an athlete. And so I, I look at so many of the people that I respect and love do a great job of just accepting beauty for what it already is. And beauty to me, it, it I love that word because beauty 
for me, brings about this idea of wonder and awe. Like I can tell you a sunset is beautiful and I have told you nothing, right? Like it, because beauty really is in this like eye of the beholder. Like what it, what brings you wonder and awe? Like we were driving um, from Bend uh, a couple days ago and the sunset and I just kept like interrupting and saying, wow. What? I said, I never... I never there will never be a time in my life where I won't find beauty in a sunset. Like just like I will drive off the side of the road because I am so like in awe of this thing that happens every freaking day. And yet I don't have the capability of looking at my body in the same way. I'm starting to get there as I'm as I'm aging as I'm really understanding the you know, the amount of hatred I've sent her way. Uh, And by that, I mean my body. And I love to see what's already there. I'm I'm really careful when I'm working with, so I I work with churches as well as people. Um, So I coach people as they're making transitions in their life, whatever it might be, because hello, that's my specialty. Uh, And then also (laughs) I work with churches and I, I always say, I'm not asking you to do something new. I'm asking you to discover what already is. And that's my theology. I, I, I've recognized at a very deep level, I believe that the work of a church or a community or whatever it might be is just helping people discover what they already are. It's not a change, it's a return. And I think the same way with my understanding the beauty of my body, it's been there the whole time. And I grew up trying to police something that never should have been policed. Now, can I take care of her in ways that give me energy? Do I feel better when I'm eating better? Yes. Do I love running because it gets me out of my ADHD brain? Yes. Do I continue to do that? Yes. But I want to love her on the days when I wake up like today and my nose is running and I can't fit in my favorite jeans because I haven't been able to run. And I want to have other people see the beauty of what already is. So I'm hearing this, that so you, your relationship with beauty really identifies a word of awe and wonder. And I can feel, I feel that in my body as you say that, but when you look in the mirror, because I think it's one thing to have that for others, but we really struggle with having that for ourselves, maybe our reflection, maybe our place in life mm-hmm. where we're at. So how are you doing receiving the beauty of you? That sounds really cheesy, but I mean it. <laughs> no, I know. Totally. And I think it's interesting because like we joke around about how like I'm a walking, you know, metaphor or whatever it might be. But like in the same way that people, when I got Gidget, this this thing has dents in her everywhere. There was no one who looked at her and thought, wow, that's beautiful. I mean, there was literally a tree growing out of her. Uh, her, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Her backside had Oof. fallen off. We found a dildo in the wall. There's so much that happened to this <laughs> poor thing. Um, this, Yeah, it belonged oh to God. someone who murdered their business partner. Like there's so much. Oh my gosh. There's so much. This thing is- You do an exorcism of kitchen. Oh, dear Lord. 100%. But there was no one who would have said, <laughs> like in its 1970s, it was like weird fabric. Like <laughs> it was so disturbing. Um, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling yeah, that. Yeah. There's no one who would have let their children play in her. Like <laughs> no. she was so, but I saw what she's going to be, which is a podcast studio and air, like a place for people to um, sleep. It's going to be like a nice bath. Like I've got all these visions for what I see in her. And I feel the same way when I've looked at other, when I've regarded other people, 
Um, one of my friends always says, oh shit, I'm turning into you. I see the potential in people now and I hate it because um, I used to like being angry with people. But I, I'm learning <laughs> how to turn that gaze inward. Yeah. And I'll be honest, it is it is something I verbally, I have to do it audibly. Um, and I have dear friends who uh, have been great. They've walked with me through my disordered body image stuff. They've stood with me. They get frustrated with me. And they're still able to say, I want you to see what I see, but I know you can't right now. And so for me, it's like I had a friend who used to make me tell her one thing I liked about myself a day that was um, that was visual. And I understand that within society's understanding of beauty, I hit the mark. I get that. I get the privilege with which I walk around. I'm a small adult female who, you know, has the the standard markers of beauty, right? And yet, um, I still struggle to embody it. And I feel like I'm at a better place than I've ever been with it, but it is harder for me. Um, then I, I think as I look in the mirror, I do see uh, this person who uh, has worked so hard to, um, to own that, to own that. Yeah. I know that like, I've got a big, huge smile and big white teeth and beautiful eyes. And it comes from like, I grew up in a family where like my dad and my mom and dad were so afraid because people commented on the way I looked all the time that that would become my identity. And so as a kid, I remember asking my dad, dad, am I pretty? Cause I overheard someone saying that I was, and my dad said, well, kid, you got nice eyes, right? Like that's just is like <laughs> such a like practical family. But I think I'm learning to like, I love that I have smile lines, you know, because I smile all the time. And I had, when you live in Orange County, I went to a dermatologist who told me that I had overactive, my, I had overactive smiling features. <laughs> Shut the front door. And I thought, yeah, that's fine. So I think I'm learning to see <laughs> beauty in the things that perhaps once would have bothered me. And I'm learning how to turn off the voices that, um, say I have to be this or that or this. It's hard. It's so hard. Yeah, thank you for all of that. And I want to acknowledge too, obviously, for those who know me and my clinical career has been working with a lot of folks who wrestle with their relationship to food in their body. But you know, and often there's a connection with obsessive compulsive struggles and neurodivergence, and the, the capacity to have a relation, a healthy, positive, um, just meaningful relationship, connected mm -hmm. relationship with food in your body. And, and so it is an ongoing struggle. And I, th I think sometimes too, there's this message of you shouldn't struggle. And I, and I, and I kind of like, if you live in Western culture and you're not in a cave <laughs> and you want any kind of media technology, television, you're going to struggle. Um, and then adding to your own nervous system, you know, personality, temperament, it's just, it, it's almost like culture piles on those in individual traits. And, and it's one of the few things that we can control. Mm -hmm. There's so little we can control, but we can control how we feed, how we move, how we talk to ourselves. It is an ongoing struggle. And, and that the, if this is a burden in your story that, you know, and, and I, I find that many people who carry this burden in their story, have gotten really good at helping other people feel beautiful and feel yeah. desirable. And that's why I wanted to ask you <laughs> where you're at today. So thank you. Yeah. I, you know, and I, 
the um, audience can't see, but I turn red when I almost talk about it because I think, you know, part of the deconstructing that also happened has been happening for me is allowing myself to also be connected to my body. Um, but I think my, my biggest realization is that within, I may not have grown up in purity culture, but I worked real hard to become part of it. And, uh, and by that, I mean, <laughs> I moved from Canada to the South. And so in the South, you know, we're, again, we're, we're really taught to disembody and to not, um, the body is bad. The body is the problem. And if you can just get that problem under control, I think about that every year with New Year's and things like that. How can I fix the problem instead of like, how can I partner with? And so I want to admit that I chose in some ways a religious narrative that allowed me to be right about that my body is bad. And now I'm learning to rewire that connection and go, no, my body's like, kind of great. Like it's weird. Like it made snot because I was sick and that's gross and weird, but also like normal. And so how can I start to love my body the way I love other people? And yet in my own self, I can't give myself that space. And so I think sometimes the thing that we're creating for other people is the thing we wish we had for ourselves. And I think like when I turned mm -hmm. 40, which was a year ago, I learned like, okay, I got to be serious about this. Yeah. And I, for me, one of the epitome one of the qualities of unburdened leadership is really embodiment mm -hmm. and, and, and being able to sit with the discomfort and still offer compassion to what we feel and what we see, because it really does limit our capacity to how we lead and love others. Mm -hmm. um, no matter how much we think we can separate the two, they're absolutely connected. So you, you touched on early in this conversation about kind of this, toxic, this is my word, but this toxic kind of adulation of how successful you were mm -hmm. um, kind of <laughs> with this church and kind of bringing it up <laughs> kind of <laughs> from the dead, not like with, with you know, obviously you, you hit all the numbers, you had more numbers right. and you made the building functioning right. again, you had all these tangible things and you were getting this praise, which is kind of like a sugar high, oh, right? Gosh, like yeah. you checked the box, right? And, and that further disconnected you from from really your desires and your truth. So I'm curious, how do you define success today? <laughs> today, I think it's funny because I, I actually have to say this every day to myself. Like, what were you working so hard for, Sarah? You were working so hard for the affirmation that you already have. You were working so hard because like the truth is, is like, my mom actually said it to me because I was like, you know, I was working so hard to hear my parents tell me they were proud of me and they, they've done that. So what the hell am I still working so hard for? I was working so hard for people to feel connected. They feel connected. So I think success now for me looks like me experiencing connectedness, me feeling like today was like a good day. So like yesterday, I was so sick. And there was a little part of me in the back of my brain that was like, you're not moving the ball forward. You've got a new podcast that's coming out in the middle of next of January. You need to record a thing. Did I have a voice to record? No, no, I did not. Uh, but my friend who's quarantining with me, um, who's also sick, we sat on the patio and played cribbage and laughed. And I thought about how different it was than the last time I had COVID and I was all by myself 
I was running a church. I was still preaching. Like, even though I was very sick, very sick, people were still contacting me. I was trying to carry everybody's burdens and I was, my body couldn't do it compared to last night where I'm sitting on a patio playing cribbage, recognizing that, okay, I got some of the things done I was hoping to get done, but I survived another day. So success to me looks like allowing myself to be present in a moment and not feel FOMO, like fear of missing out, or you haven't done enough. Because the truth is, is I live around a lot of really wealthy people who don't appreciate what they have because they can't experience it. So for me, I felt wealthy as I sat, and, and I'm poorer than I've ever been, as I sat on my patio playing cribbage and giving myself the time to be present to where I was right then in that moment, laughing and just thinking, yeah, I'm really sick, but I'm not alone like I've been before. I'm not carrying the burdens of everyone else like I've been before. And I'm letting my body do what my body needs to do. So as you look around your life right now, you know, and you're in your commute from Orange County to Bend, it's like <laughs> more than a commute. It's like a full on road trip. But when you look around what you're doing yeah. with Gidget and some of these other things you've got with coaching and consulting, <clears throat> is this what you thought you'd be doing? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, it depends on what season of Sarah you're you're asking, what you thought you would be doing. I think the truth is that I always have wanted to help other people. That's like, you know, the corniest thing you hear. But if you would ask Sarah what she would be doing, first of all, I thought coaching was ridiculous and didn't really help people. And now I've got clients that I cannot believe the shift that they've made in their lives to the point where like I'm getting on. Isn't it powerful? Oh my gosh. Isn't it powerful? Oh my God. I love it. It's the favorite part of ministry. Like if I'm honest, it was my favorite part of ministry was getting people to tap into what was already in them. Like I love it. Um, consulting churches. I love it because I can problem solve really quick and I love not having to be the one to fix it. Like I'm like, here's the problem here. You guys came up with the solutions. How can I make steps to help you get there and not do it? That's great. Let me do that. Um, so I love what I'm doing. Did I think it was what I would be doing? No. Did the people in my guidance groups think that like, I was in a guidance group, which is like a mentoring, like masterclass kind of thing. Did they think this is what I would be doing? Yes. So I think other people saw me doing this. I just didn't see it. I see a trend in your life with other people seeing things before you saw them in you. So it's a good data point to check in with our circle on what they're seeing. Okay. I want to wrap up with some quick fire questions. Sarah, what are you reading right now? Yeah. So I am right now starting to read The Body Keeps the Score. Um, Standard foundational. Yeah. Neat. So important. I am really good at pretending I've read things that I haven't read. So I've read clips from that. Uh, and so now I'm actually reading it and also the one thing, but I actually haven't started it. It's just in my queue. <laughs> it's in your queue. I'm curious what you th- take away from that. What song are you playing on repeat right now? Uh, so there's this, <laughs> I have a list of songs, so I'm only going to tell you one cause I'm such a music person. So, um, me too. There is a song called uh, This Must Be the Place, and it's by a band called Sure Sure. Okay. I want to check it out. What is the best movie or show that you've watched or seen recently? Okay. I know everyone says Ted Lasso, but also Ted Lasso. And so Ted Lasso, great show. Uh, I think it is the gospel. Um, but I have been watching a show called The Expanse, which is a Canadian show. Uh, it is 
so in depth. Have you watched it? Do you know it? I have, and my husband's catching up, and I kind of faded off, but now I'm going to get back into it because he because it's oh my gosh because it's 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 intense. It is. Yeah. So intense. Um, one of the things I love about it is my brother and I can watch it together. My brother is an electrical engineer and his brain is like massive and he loves the show because the science is correct, which for him is really important. Ooh. Oh, good to know. Okay. Favorite 80s movie or anything 80s pop culture? Ooh. Okay. I know we just left the season and I, I, had a, I wanted to say Goonies, but I'm going to say Christmas Vacation. Okay. I mean, it is a staple. It is a staple. Whether you like it or not, it's just, it is so embodied the 80s. Like, I loved it so much. And it, our family is a little bit, like, I think I thought that's what every family was like. <laughs> what is your mantra that you're saying on repeat right now? It is enough. Over and over. I have Ooh. a bracelet that says it. Yes. It says it on my wall. It is enough. Yes. That's my mantra. I lo- I'm all about an enough mindset. That's awesome. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold? <laughs> I saw this question and I was like, that everyone should be vaccinated. Um, but I, guess, I think it is a bit of an unpopular opinion. Another unpopular one is that, gosh, I think that we don't have to have one thing right now. That's just my, yes. and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll read the book and I'll think I'm wrong. Follow up and let me know. And who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Gosh, honestly, my relationships, my friendships. I think I... I joke about it, but I I mean it when I say I may not have a lot of money, but I have a lot of people. And when things got really hard and I knew I couldn't keep going in my job, I was crying and saying, oh my gosh, I'm how am I ever going to keep going? I've had a successful career and maybe I should just do the thing that I'm good at. Da, 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 da. And my friend said, I really want you to think about all the people who would let you live on their couch for like ever. So I think the people that are inspiring me are my actual friends, um, friendships like the one I have with you. And just that makes me, and then to be a better leader, I really have enjoyed the work of Renee Brown. I've enjoyed um, the work of Glenn Doyle. I really, that inspires me to be a better leader, but it also inspires me to just show up as myself and recognize the leadership that I already have within me. And I can just tap into, because sometimes I think I've been looking for external, like you said, sometimes it feels like the external figures it out before me. But good leadership is really understanding that's already within you. So those are the things, I guess. Truth. Sarah, this has been a joy. Where can listeners find you if they want to connect with you, your journey, your work? Yeah. So I've got a couple of podcasts on the Irreverent Media podcast group. So we've got one called Making Spaces that's going to start um, recording again, actually this month. Revcovery is a uh, <laughs> for people who are leaving ministry so or changing their uh, career there is also a really fun and silly one that I do with my nine non-binary bestie, which is called Your Favorite Ants, and it's a weekly live podcast. Get ready for a lot of cussing and pop culture conversation, and it's just a lot of fun. It's really deep and also light, and you can find all of this on uh, RevSarahHeath.com. Please follow me on Instagram. That's kind of my that's my place where I connect with people the most. So if, you, if you're looking for me, find me, RevSarahHeath.com. And also, fun part of the Instagram is that you get to see Flipping Gidget. So if you go to the hashtag Flipping Gidget, you will learn all about my Airstream and how I'm brutally probably doing it wrong. But we're trying. (laughs) I have a deeper appreciation for the love that Gidget is receiving, knowing their origin story. So, (laughs) yeah, I feel that. Sarah, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the Unburdened Leader podcast. So glad to talk with you today. And I know so many people are going to get a lot of what you shared today. So thank you so much. Thank you. So good to see you always.
We are told over and over again who we should be. So much so we often lose touch with who we are and what it means to feel enough. We're told by culture who we should be. We're told by our family who we should be. We're told by our places of work and education who we should be. And when we prioritize who we should be instead of fully investigate and then embody the many multiplicities we hold, we end up exiling parts of ourselves while exhausting ourselves in the process. And our bodies are usually ground zero for these attacks towards ourselves and others. We end up working in ways that are unsustainable and care for our bodies in ways that are unsustainable. So I'm curious, what identities do you exile or struggle to embrace? What are the influences that impact you seeing worthiness and enough in yourself and others? And what support do you need to deepen your capacity to embrace all of your identities, even if it pushes against the messages of dominant culture? Sarah shared the impact of embracing her multiplicities as a powerful part of addressing her burnout and disillusionment. She also gave us a window on how leaving her job and renovating a debilitated Airstream ended up as a much needed renovation of her own life too. I'm so thankful for this important reminder from Sarah, as I suspect many of you can relate to aspects of her story. And committing to do the work to embrace your multiplicities instead of trying to fit into a mold is so needed. It is also the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard and leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. Now, you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, sign up for the Unburdened Leader Weekly and additional Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. Dot com.